Welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, January 26, 2024. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, two down and maybe just one more to go for Nikki Haley following another Trump victory this week in New Hampshire. CBN's David Brody stops by to talk about it. Also, Trump inserts himself into the Senate border negotiations, China and Russia trying to control the Arctic, and a whole lot more coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. A reminder, friends, to tell your friends or family members about the DC Debrief. Help them put it into their phones if you have to. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that podcasts are available. And this is the best weekly recap of what's been going on in Washington, D.C. I will tell you what the news is, who said what, and then it's up to you to decide what to do with that information. And with that being the case, here is your debrief for this week. 2024 update. Once again, the polls appear to be getting it right so far as Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday night in a state that Nikki Haley really had to win in order to have a chance at the nomination. CBN News congressional correspondent Matt Galka has the recap. You know, we won New Hampshire three times now, three. First Iowa, now New Hampshire. Donald Trump is well on his way to winning a third consecutive GOP presidential nomination and he's throwing heat at his only real remaining rival. I can go up and I can say to everybody, oh, thank you for the victory, it's wonderful, it's what, or I can go up and say, who the hell was the imposter that went up on the stage before and like claimed a victory? She did very poorly, actually. Former UN ambassador Nikki Haley is the only major challenger standing in Trump's way. And while she made gains with voters in New Hampshire, she still came up short. I wanna congratulate Donald Trump on his victory tonight. He earned it, and I want to acknowledge that. Now, you've all heard the chatter among the political class. They're falling all over themselves, saying this race is over. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. While Haley plans on sticking around, Trump ramped up his attacks on her as they turned their focus to South Carolina, where Haley is a former governor. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott joined Trump on stage at his New Hampshire victory speech Tuesday night. Scott is backing Trump even though Haley appointed him to his Senate seat. You must really hate her. No, it's, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. Uh-oh. I just love you. No, that's, that's why he's a great politician. The early exit polls paint a picture of Trump having a strong grip on the party. He dominated with registered Republicans three to one. But Haley dominated with independent and unregistered voters two to one, a case she's been making if Trump becomes the nominee. The worst kept secret in politics is how badly the Democrats want to run against Donald Trump. They know Trump is the only Republican in the country who Joe Biden can defeat. President Biden's re-election campaign is only focused on one candidate, and that's Donald Trump. The campaign released a statement after the New Hampshire results saying it's clear that Trump would be the GOP nominee and the stakes for the election couldn't be higher. Trump and Haley now set their sights on South Carolina and that state's primary, which is set to take place 
on February 24th. Now on the Democratic side, President Biden easily beat out his rivals thanks mostly to a write-in campaign as his name was not on the ballot. That's in response to the White House pushing for South Carolina, not New Hampshire being the first primary for the Democrats this time around. Now, one of the issues that is concerning to election experts, there was a fake robocall that went out just ahead of the New Hampshire primary in which someone created a voice that sounded a lot like Joe Biden's, telling them that if they came out to vote in the primary on Tuesday, they wouldn't be able to vote in the general election in November, saying not to throw their vote away. Here, give it a listen. Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. Your vote makes a difference in November, not this Tuesday. State officials are still trying to figure out where the robocall originated from, but this is an example, they say, of the kind of digital manipulation that could become even more sophisticated as artificial intelligence and the abuse of it becomes more commonplace over the next few years. Looking ahead to South Carolina, a poll out this week by 538 shows Trump with a commanding 37-point lead in Nikki Haley's home state. We'll have more on this with David Brody coming up. Border deal latest. Senators continued to work on a border deal that would also fund Ukraine's war effort against Russian aggression. A battle Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says is in our own interests to help Ukraine win. This has never been about charity. Not about charity. It's not about virtue signaling or abstract principles of international relations. This is about cold, hard American interests. It is in the United States direct interest for authoritarians not to feel free to redraw redraw maps by force. However, it now appears the border deal, Ukraine aid, and potentially the expansion of the child tax credit all could be hitting snags that will render all three proposals dead. And it looks as though Donald Trump is inserting himself now in this immigration negotiations. In a private meeting with Republican senators on Wednesday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell reportedly told his colleagues they are in a quandary over moving forward as Trump has been lobbying Republicans in Congress to kill a border deal with Democrats in an effort to keep the issue front and center during the presidential campaign. Republican Senator Mitt Romney says this is a problem that needs to be solved, not punted. I think the border is a very important issue for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, And the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. And Republican Senator Tom Tillis also angry at Trump's meddling. We are here. We've been elected. We have election certificates. When you have an opportunity to make this country safer, you take it and you don't play politics. The border deal is holding up the passage of a national security package supplemental, which would also send funds to Ukraine and Israel. On Fox News, Senator Josh Hawley was asked if Trump's involvement means the deal is now dead on arrival. Uh, I hope so. It should be. If it's not dead yet, it should be dead. I mean, there is absolutely no reason to agree to policies that will just further enable Joe Biden. However, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is still keeping the faith that negotiators can finish over the weekend and reach a compromise. Now, as we've seen over the past day, getting a bipartisan agreement on the supplemental is very difficult. But I am glad that now negotiations are continuing to move forward. Of course, there are still issues that must be settled, but negotiators will work all weekend in an effort to get this done.
Even if the Senate passes a deal, it is unlikely to even be brought to the floor of the House, a fact not lost on Republican Senator Rick Scott. We should not be voting for anything as Republicans in the Senate if the Republicans in the House House don't support it. A Harvard Caps Harris poll out this week found 35% of registered voters ranked immigration as the nation's top concern. Two in three voters said the problem is worsening under President Biden, but three quarters want the two sides to make a deal to increase border security. If there is no border deal, then Ukraine funding in the House essentially is dead. It's not happening. Also, Speaker Mike Johnson is facing resistance from within his own party on a bipartisan, bicameral expansion of the child tax credit, which we talked about a little bit last week, as well as three business tax credits that would be reinstituted as part of this tax deal. The Freedom Caucus, members like Republican Chip Roy, don't like the cost. He doesn't trust the pay for, and he's against illegal immigrants receiving child tax credit money for children born in the U.S. Of course, Democrats argue that children born in the U.S. to illegal immigrants called dreamers are U.S. citizens, but it's obviously an issue for those to the right of Speaker Johnson and others in the House, uh, an issue that they're taking up with the CTC. So still some, some ways to go before this officially gets passed by the House and the Senate. Securing the Arctic in a story you're probably not going to see anyplace else. A recent House hearing examined how Russia and China are trying to exert their influence in every area of the globe and how America is reacting, and specifically in this case, in the Arctic. CBN's national security correspondent Caitlin Burke has more. With the Alaska Purchase in 1867, the U.S. became one of eight countries with territory above the Arctic Circle. Russia has the largest presence, and as its alliance with China strengthens, so does Beijing's influence. We are in a new era of authoritarian aggression, led by the dictators Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. They are running hostile regimes that seek to control access to the Arctic region. In the summer of 2022, China and Russia deployed their first joint naval task force of seven ships into Alaska's waters. It happened again last summer with 11 ships. This is a sign of things to come. We not only need more Coast Guard assets, but also a Navy presence back in Alaska. We will need to be able to respond more rapidly in the future to these kind of incursions. With sea ice receding, experts warn Arctic routes are more accessible than ever. And U.S. adversaries have built up Arctic capabilities and military facilities, leaving America in their wake. The U.S. is very poorly positioned in order to defend its own sovereignty in the region versus the Russians, uh, which have invested heavily uh, over the past couple decades in, in uh, basically trying to militarize the region. The U.S. currently has only one operational polar icebreaker ship, which is uniquely designed to navigate the Arctic waters. Russia's fleet has more than 50, and the Chinese are on pace to surpass the U.S. by 2025. Under pressure to keep up, the Coast Guard wants eight to nine more icebreakers in the region. We need your continued support to build out our polar security cutters and rapidly accelerate us into the future where we can have a greater capacity for icebreakers. Lawmakers consider securing the Arctic an urgent critical need and this year have authorized roughly $168 million for military construction and equipment. With the nation's first deep water port underway in Nome, Alaska, the goal is for there to be the infrastructure to handle these icebreakers and Navy destroyers by the end of the decade. 
White House pushing for Middle East ceasefire. President Biden is sending CIA Director Nicholas Burns to the Middle East to try and help secure a major peace deal in Gaza between the Israelis and Hamas. Burns is expected to travel to Europe for the talks and meet with the Israelis, as well as Egyptian intelligence chiefs David Barnia and Abbas Kamel and the Qatari Prime Minister. Now, this week, Israel had proposed a two-month pause in the fighting in exchange for a phased release of the more than 100 hostages still being held by Hamas, beginning with civilian women and children, and followed by civilian men, military women, and then military men, and then as well as the remains of those who have died since their abductions. The Israelis have also proposed that senior Hamas leaders agree to get out of Gaza. However, one person familiar with the negotiations said that idea was a non-starter for Hamas and its military leaders, who they say are prepared to die as martyrs in Gaza. Hamas has also said no to Israel's 60-day pause, saying that the next hostage release should involve a permanent ceasefire. Now, as these talks are beginning, the State Department is reacting to a strike on a UN facility in Gaza that was, house- that was housing about 800 Palestinian refugees this week. Israel has denied responsibility for this attack. The Israeli military said it had ruled out that its aerial or artillery fire had been responsible for the strike on a shelter in Khan Yunus, where the UN was housing again about 800 people. Nine people died in this attack. 75 other people were injured, uh, according to, uh, to according to the United Nations in Gaza. Officials did not directly blame Israel. UN officials say they don't have proof that it was Israel for sure, but said that the shelter, which is in a vocational training center, had been hit by two tank rounds, and they say Israel is the only combatant in Gaza with tanks. At a news conference in Washington, Vedant Patel, a State Department spokesman, said the strike was incredibly concerning and said civilians must be protected and the protected nature of UN facilities must be respected. But he did decline to say whether U.S. officials had spoken to the Israelis about the shelter strike. One would imagine they have, of course. The Israeli military said that it was conducting a review of its operations in the area of the shelter. Affordable Care Act numbers. A record 21.3 million Americans flocked to Affordable Care Act coverage for 2024, nearly 5 million more than signed up for Obamacare last year. That's according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which oversees the Affordable Care Act marketplaces. About a quarter of the people selecting plans were new consumers. In several states, including many led by Republicans, there was a massive jump in signups. In West Virginia, Plan selections soared to 80%, and in Louisiana, it was up by roughly 76%. Obamacare proving very popular in these two states with the highest number of plan selections, Texas and Florida, where 1.1 million and nearly 1 million more residents picked policies in those two states. Safe firearm storage. This week, the White House said that President Biden was enacting new executive actions aimed at raising awareness of safe firearm storage. The U.S. Department of Education taking new actions on this issue by sending a letter to school principals around the country that will go into helping them explain the importance of safe storage of guns and other weapons and encouraging them to communicate with parents families, and the broader communities that they are in about how storing weapons safely can protect students in school and in their communities. Uh, The Department of Education is also going to issue a new communication template that principals and other school leaders can use to engage with parents and with families about the importance of safe firearm storage and encourage more people to 
get locks to figure out different ways to take preventive action and safely store their firearms. The Justice Department also will be getting involved. They'll be, they'll be releasing a guide to safe storage of firearms in order to provide expertise on different types of storage services, best practices for safely storing these firearms. This would be the most comprehensive guide on safe storage, storage ever released by the federal government. Boeing CEO on Capitol Hill, Dave Calhoun, met with senators on Capitol Hill Wednesday to answer some hard questions about a recent incident in which a door blew off in the middle of a flight earlier this month. Back on January 5th, the door plug on an Alaska air flight came off as the plane was about three miles up opening a gaping hole, a terrifying scene caught on cell phone video by passengers. Reporting from the New York Times and Seattle Times found that just before the door blew off, when the plane was still on the ground, Boeing had removed and reinstalled that part after it was initially removed so that repairs could be made on the fuselage of the plane by Spirit Aerosystems. The NTSB is investigating both companies over the incident, and reporting indicates that Calhoun told his employees at a staff-wide meeting a few days later that the company, quote, made a mistake with regard to the door plugs. Cornered by reporters after his meeting with senators, Calhoun said he wants to be upfront and open with members of Congress about Boeing safety standards and practices and about the Alaska Air incident in particular. We fly safe planes. We don't Easy put cuts. airplanes in the air that we don't have 100% confidence in. I'm here today in the spirit of transparency to number one, recognize the seriousness of what you just asked. Number two, to share everything I can with our Capitol Hill interests um, and answer all their questions because they have a lot of them. What is your comment today on the news that it was Boeing, not Spirit? Thank you. No, thanks so much. NTSB, thank you. Are you here? Thank you. Did you ask for these meetings, sir? Thank you very much. Or did the senators ask to meet with you? At the end there, that was a reporter asking about the Seattle Times report that indicated it was Boeing who did the inspection work shortly before the panel blew off, not Spirit. And he obviously had no comment there. The CEO of Alaska Airlines says they have found instances of loose bolts on many of their planes. So on Thursday, the FAA approved an inspection process that will allow the MAX 9 planes to return to the air. They had been grounded since this incident. However, Boeing will not be allowed to expand their production of the MAX 9s until this inspection process has had a chance to go through the process, until there's been a rigorous safety analysis process that is overseen by the FAA. Now, after meeting with Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun, Senator Maria Cantwell, a Democrat, announced that she will hold congressional hearings to investigate the lapses that led to a piece of passenger cabin blowing off that Boeing 737 MAX 9 over Portland, Oregon. Well, so far in this Republican primary season, no surprises if you have been paying attention to the polling thus far. And uh, after a very comfortable win in Iowa, a little bit of a closer finish in New Hampshire, but still a comfortable win from Donald Trump. So where does the race go from here? And what did we learn, if anything, from New Hampshire? Joining me to talk a little bit more about that is CBN News Chief Political Analyst David Brody, good friend of the podcast. David, thanks for coming back on the DC Debrief. How are you? Good, John. Thanks for having me. 
It's great to have you. And I think one of the one of my big takeaways is in recent elections, so f- the polling has been off, right? I mean, we've gotten some sometimes it's been good, but other times it's been it's been very much off. And especially on the Republican side of things, it seems as though pollsters have had a hard time capturing what Republican voters are thinking. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. That's just been kind of my mm-hmm. observation from the outside. This time around with Iowa and New Hampshire so far, the results have almost perfectly mirrored what voters have been saying in polls leading up to these two things. And so it hasn't, I don't think, been terribly surprising these two outcomes thus far. What is your take on on the expectations game for both of these candidates going into New Hampshire and what ended up happening? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think you're onto something. And I think the reason for that is twofold. I mean, first of all, most voters had made up their mind a long time ago. Uh, and so so you're not going to see as much fluctuation. And that's why the polls are relatively consistent. The, the other part of it and the, and the larger part of it is that this is Trump's party. It's always been Trump's party. It's always been um, the, the GOP electorate has been his. And there's been a lot of gnashing of teeth uh, among not just the liberals, but a lot of uh, some Republicans as well. And uh, the anti-Trump crowd to say, how in the world could a guy that's been impeached twice, has 91 indictments and a, and a partridge in a pear tree, uh, been able to somehow figure uh, this out and get as far as he has? And we can get into all of the psychological stuff behind that. But the bottom line is uh, the electorate's always been there. Uh, and the problem for DeSantis and Haley have been that they both, especially DeSantis, that he misjudged the electorate. Hmm. Uh, and so that's the reason for the poll numbers being pretty much steady, because this has been steady for a long time for Donald Trump. I, I don't think there's been any surprises here. People know who he is. They understand the way they see it. It's a weaponization uh, against him. Uh, and, and to a degree, he's he's a it's a proxy fight to a larger weaponization battle that they see as w- being waged against them mm-hmm. uh, by the federal government. And I and I think that, in essence, is reason one of the main reasons that why he had the electorate. And then because of that, the polls seem to suggest uh, no changes whatsoever. Yeah, and it was a uh, with, with Nikki Haley. I mean, she's she's been um, rising, and and certainly that's been an impressive rise. I mean, she might be setting herself up for for twenty twenty eight. But the the calls for her to drop out of the race are growing louder each and every day. W- what's your take on the head of the RNC essentially saying that this is Donald Trump's primary right now? This is this is his party. He's the nominee. Traditionally, do RNC chairs, DNC chairs, do they generally withhold on saying something like that before the b- before candidates have officially dropped out? Yes, traditionally they do. They'll, they'll wait to see the primary process play out. But in this case, uh, the way the electorate is and the way MAGA has been, you know, roaring for a long time, uh, she's a couple months behind the game. I mean, you know, MAGA has been calling I'm talking about the Trump fans here, uh, which is about 30 percent, 35 percent of the electorate and 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 the majority of the Republican Party right now. They've been calling for Ronnie McDaniel since November. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has it been? Three months or so uh, to say stop already. I mean, let's all coalesce behind Trump even before the primaries had started, which, of course, you, you need the primaries to play out. You need delegates to go to the, the convention and all that. But they wanted Ronnie McDaniel to step in and say enough. So she's been under a lot of pressure to to come out. And so that's why I think you're seeing this earlier than than you typically would. Mm-hmm. But beyond all of that, let's be honest. I mean, no one has won. No non-incumbent has won Iowa and New Hampshire ever historically. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we've heard that headline. But let's unpack that for a moment. What, what does that mean exactly? What it means is, is that Iowa 
uh, and New Hampshire, two totally different electorates. Um, Donald Trump was able to win both handily. As a matter of fact, Iowa, obviously by 30 points and New Hampshire by what does it end up being about 11 points or so? Yeah. I mean, give or take. Uh, but but here's the point. You can easily, easily make the the um, the come to the conclusion that the New Hampshire victory was actually more impressive for Donald Trump. Uh, you know, a lot of people look at the number, go 30 points. Wow. What a shellacking. And New Hampshire was closer. No, that's the easy intellectual play. Uh, the, the deeper dive suggests that Nikki Haley was on fertile ground there. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about the electorate, 51 percent, 51 percent of the Republican primary voters were not Republican. Mm -hmm. Think about that for a second. Yeah. 45 percent undeclared independent, 6 percent Democrat party identified. That's 51 percent not Republican in a Republican primary. Right. 49 percent, 49 percent Republican. So Donald Trump won on those grounds. He won on an exit poll that showed that 64 percent of the New Hampshire electorate was not MAGA. 64 percent was not MAGA. Mm -hmm. And he still won. Uh, you look at the fact that the ideology of the New Hampshire electorate was eight to 10 percent, roughly more moderate this time around than 2016, dot, dot, dot. And he still won. So you go down the list and you see that he's winning in culture, conservative, evangelical Iowa. He's winning in moderate, uh, less, way less evangelical New Hampshire. That's called running the gamut. Getting back to your question about Ronna McDaniel. That's another reason I think she came out and said, look, this is game set match. And a lot of people will say, well, wait a minute. It's Iowa, New Hampshire. The delegate race is 32, 17 you know, let the other 48 states decide. Well, hold on for a second. Iowa and New Hampshire have been, in essence, national races. That's where all the money's gone. That's where all the time and attention has gone. These are proxy national races. And when you win in both Iowa and New Hampshire, that, in essence, is a major statement. It's not about delegates, because you're right. I mean, I say you're right, but people are right. I mean, you know, Nikki Haley's only down 15 delegates to Donald Trump. So does she still have a chance? Well, well, well yeah, but no, because... Uh, every poll going forward, whether it be South Carolina or even some of these many, many other states, they're all Florida. I can just go down the list. They're all showing Donald Trump far and above ahead. Yeah, I want to talk about South Carolina coming up in, in just a second. But I, I, one of the things that I have seen was independent voters in New Hampshire. And obviously, like you said, it's not just Republicans who vote in Republican primary in New Hampshire, undeclares independence and Democrats can, they have to pick one, but they can vote. You can pick whichever primary you want to vote in. Nikki Haley did do better with independence than Donald Trump did in New Hampshire. And I've seen that talked uh, talked about a lot. I know Chris Sununu has been hammering on that. I think based on the exit polls, two to one independents were going to Nikki Haley over Donald Trump. Is that a potential red flag for Donald Trump after the GOP primary? Once the general election starts to roll in, does he have work to do there if he can't turn that number around? I mean, sure, uh, sure, but but there's a, a quite a few asterisks with that. So, for example, that's that's once again kind of like the the easy narrative that the media will trot out there based on these numbers. Don't get me wrong. So, mm. so, so there's always some work to do. But if you go deeper inside the numbers, specifically into the swing states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Arizona, Georgia, uh, especially the Rust Belt, Mich I'm talking about Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, Donald Trump does very, very well with independence there in those swing states. Okay. It's not New Hampshire independence. It's different. Uh, and so therefore he is appealing to that blue collar, former Democrat, 
that independent that he won in 2016 that propelled him to the White House. I believe he is there again with those voters, the ones that voted for Biden in 2020. But I believe a lot of them will come back to Trump. Uh, why do I say that? The economy, obviously. But immigration, those are the two main drivers. But then there's a third one, an intangible one, the 91 indictments. You know, you got you know, to get how do I say this to, to, to get into the, the, the psyche of an independent blue collar Democrat voter in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, you got to understand the grievance factor. Right. I mean, these are the little guy. Right. These are the guys that, you know, put dinner on the table and live paycheck to paycheck. And uh, the man is against them. The big guy, the corporate people, you know, everybody's out to get them. They just want to feed their family and live a simple life. D Donald Trump is being. Uh, the way he has termed it, persecuted by the left, by the weaponization of government. And they see that. They understand that. They, they, uh, there, there's an emotional connection on the grievance issue. He had it in 2016. He lost a little bit of that in 2020 after being president. But it's back. And it's back with a vengeance because, well, maybe pun intended with a vengeance, but it's back with a vengeance uh, because of everything that's happened to him in the courts. And then you compound that with the fact that, well, look at pro-lifers. They're under attack by the DOJ. Look at Mark Houck. Uh, we can go down the list of a, a lot of pro-lifers. There's a couple of 80-year-old-plus grandmas, pro-life grandmas, in jail over the FACE Act because the DOJ decided to prosecute them. Look, I can go down the list as it relates to pro-lifers and religious freedom issues. And th there are people of faith and those independents and those blue collar, old school, blue collar Democrats that feel like they're under attack themselves. So this isn't just about Trump. They see Trump as kind of fighting for them because they're all in it together. And I think that's a very important thing to understand. So the, the, the media is looking at this from kind of like an overall, whether it be New Hampshire or they look at it overall in the country. Don't mm -hmm. look at that. Look at yeah. the specific swing states. That's what you need to look at. And there, Donald Trump is doing better. Now, could that change if there are convictions with some of these indictments? And I, I think most Republicans, most of the electorate, it doesn't see the, the Stormy Daniels hush money case in the same way that they look at maybe the classified documents case or the January 6th case or, or whatever it may be. If we're talking about independents, the people whose votes could still potentially be swayed one way or the other, the undeclareds, if these, once these trials begin and Nikki Haley is staying in the race, part of the argument is that she's staying in the race in, in case something happens with regard to these trials and convictions and whatnot, and she's, she's still there. I don't know if the timing makes sense with that argument necessarily, mm -hmm. how these trials are going to play out. But if there's convictions, if things come out in these trials, which are, which, which are damaging to, to the pre, to former president Trump, could that sway independent voters? Is there a chance that this support that he has that you're talking about, the grievance issues, could that wane if they see some things come out in these trials and some convictions take place? It's possible, but here's the problem. The track record has been two impeachments and 91 indictments later, nothing has changed. The, mm. the, the narrative is already set, so a conviction doesn't change the narrative. A yeah. conviction just uh, emphasizes the narrative to say, wow, he's been wrongly convicted. Um, <clears throat> so I don't necessarily... Excuse me. I'm mm -hmm. all choked up. It's emotional. Not it's very, really. very emotional. Yeah, that's right. No, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't see it changing now. Having said that, obviously, a conviction um, may change it on the margins to a degree with independence. Sure. Um, and, and that's going to be worth monitoring. I mean, I don't think, you know, it would be naive to say otherwise. Uh, but but having said that, let's remember, if he is convicted, which I'm not convinced he'll even be um 
I don't even know if there'll be a, a final decision on any of these trials before November. But right. if, the, if there are, let's just say there are, uh, my sense talking to some legal experts is that the Supreme Court will eventually overturn mm. uh, that conviction. And so I don't necessarily ever see Donald Trump getting convicted and wearing an orange. I mean, he's got orange hair, but I don't see him in an orange <laughs> jumpsuit to match yeah. his orange hair. I, I, I don't see it. Uh, having said that, it's something to be to be on the lookout for. And I'll simply say, as it relates to Nikki Haley, you're right. I mean, this is, in essence, what she could be going for here is the implosion strategy, right? Mm. You know, fumble the go fumble the ball on the goal line, um, or, you know, it's the old football team running out the clock. All they have to do is take a knee and run out the clock. But, oops, they fumble the ball, and the other team runs it in for a touchdown. I mean, that could be it uh, because you're right. You never know what could happen with everything, with, with all of these intangibles. And the other intangible we really haven't talked about, which is out there, Supreme Court's going to decide whether or not mm. uh, Trump can be on the ballot in places like Colorado right. and others. So so if the if the Supreme Court and by the way, hold your breath, conservatives with uh, John Roberts, who is the new David Souter for conservatives or Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, you could have a five four decision against Trump on that. I don't think that's going to happen. But if it does, that throws another layer into all of this. And then it goes to Nikki Haley's point, which is this is the chaos candidate and you just have to vote for me. The problem for Nikki Haley is that even if all of that happened, let's just say that happened, the ball was fumbled, the conviction, the thing, okay. She's got no enthusiasm among the Republican base of the party. And I'm talking mm -hmm. about MAGA. Yeah. You know, you got 30% of MAGA who will not vote for Nikki Haley. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. That means it's Joe Biden would win a second term. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They, they, they won't vote for Nikki Haley. They're principled enough to say, absolutely not. Nikki Haley is exactly what they rail against. Remember, MAGA is not Republican, even though hmm. they're Republican. Right. In other words, they they're a little bit more, dare I call them a bit anarchist. Yeah. Um, they're, they're a little bit more. Uh, they're against the uniparty. So they're against Republicans and Democrats, traditional establishment people. And so they won't vote for Nikki Haley. They would I mean, vote I'm for not, Biden over Haley, you think? If, no, they, if, they're not going to vote for Biden. They just wouldn't vote for anybody. They're gonna, yeah, they're going to sit home. They're going to sit okay. home. So, so once again, to be clear, and I don't know what the figures are going to be, but but you know, MAGA's roughly about thirty percent of the electorate. Thirty uh, percent. If Donald Trump was running, thirty percent, so to speak, are all going to vote for Trump. If Nikki Haley's uh, the one on the ballot, maybe three, five, seven percent will that will turn out. I call them the light red MAGA, mm. not the deep dark MAGA. Or, or definitely not solid red MAGA. They're the not magenta MAGA, kind of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Seriously, <laughs> yeah, right, magenta. Yeah, we're into the color spectrum at this yeah. point. But yeah, so so she's going to have a problem with the base. I mean, think about it, John, for a second. Sorry, I'm going uh, off on a tangent here. I feel like I need a sedative. But <laughs> look, the, the, the truth, and, and by the way, I'll take one after this podcast. <laughs> but, but let me be, be clear. How does Nikki Haley, think about this for a second. How does Nikki Haley win a Republican primary when Republican primary voters don't want her. Yeah. Um, let, let's think that through for a second. I mean, if you have to rely on independents and Democrats, for example, in New Hampshire or writ large, if you have to rely on independents in open primaries, uh, whether it be South Carolina or 11 of the 16 open primaries on Super Tuesday, that's not a winning prescription to win. Wait for it. The Republican nomination. You have to win. Wait for it again. Republicans. And it's just not happening with Nikki Haley. Um, and let's also be clear, as I continue on in my diatribe in my soapbox, which is if this was 1994, Nikki Haley's the Republican nominee. Yeah. If this is 2004, she's the Republican nominee. 
2014, she's not the Republican nominee. The Tea Party came onto the scene in 2010 and changed the entire complexion of Republican politics. And then, of course, we know in 2024, Donald Trump's on the scene. So bottom line is she missed her time. She's a Reagan conservative, but this is not the party of Reagan anymore. And and there do, now let me just be clear. Let me put the caveat out there. Are there certain Republicans that want to see a return to the party of Reagan? Absolutely. Uh, but it's a, it's a minority today. Uh, the 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 Republican Party is now populist. Mm-hmm. It's fully populist. With Reagan, there was a bit of a populist streak, a strain, but today it's full on populism, and uh, it doesn't look like anything like your grandfather's Republican Party, and that's bad news for Nikki Haley. Last thing, looking ahead to South Carolina, it's obviously Nikki Haley's home state, but yeah. there certainly the numbers are not trending in her direction. And even her, her, the South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who she appointed to that seat, is in, vociferously endorsing Donald Trump appearing at rallies. And, and she, according to a 538 poll that was out uh, on Thursday, trailing 62 to 25 in her home state. If she doesn't perform better i mean what is what does she have to do do you think do you think she'll drop out of the race if she doesn't win south carolina or make it close i mean it's it's a huge chasm right now yeah i mean if she gets trounced in south carolina i can't imagine her going on to super tuesday to say there's any sort of path there's no path now uh but but South Carolina would be a literal egg on your face moment. And, and quite frankly, more than that, a uh, political legacy defining moment for her. And, mm-hmm. you know, who wants that? I mean, let's just talk from a human perspective. I mean, do you, do I, if we were running, I mean, we want that. No, I don't think anybody wants that. And, and, you know, once again, what's the path, you know, once again, if, if there's a path out there, Ron DeSantis, kudos to him. He realized there wasn't a path and he knew it. He got out. Um, Nikki Haley, if she thinks there's a path, there just isn't. I, I I don't see it. No one sees it. Now, here's the thing. In answer to your question, the, the answer won't be Nikki Haley's to make. It'll be the donors that will decide. Mm-hmm. Uh, the donors will look at her and go, uh, Nikki, um, well, I guess if I was in old school, I'd say the word checkbook. I'd invoke the word checkbook now, but <laughs> I'll say it this way. Uh, Nikki, we're not going to sell you any more money. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you're done. The Bitcoin is closed. Yeah, that's right. We're closing the Venmo account, Nikki. And it's been a pleasure uh, because that's that's what's going to it's going to come to. So and so I think that hard conversation happens after South Carolina. I think there's a chance. (laughs) Excuse me. If the numbers don't tighten. Remember, she's spending four million dollars on ad buys in, in South Carolina right now and more to come. If those numbers don't tighten with all of the money that she's buying uh, or or, you know, putting down there. She may get out before South Carolina, but at this point, I think she probably stays in through South Carolina. But once again, we'll know the answer to that mm-hmm. question comes from the donors. But at this point, it's like the the money she's spending. I mean, you might as well flush it down the toilet. Mm. I, seriously, you might as well flush it down the toilet because here's here's the thing: money matters, but money matters only if your message meets the voters where they're at. Yeah, and if her her message, okay, so her message is Donald Trump's the the candidate of chaos. And this is a traditional stat, you, you know, she's, tr- she's selling traditional establishment Republicanism, Republicanism fine, but your ceiling is like 17%, 20%. So, 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 you know, knock yourself out, but you're not getting anywhere. It's a math, math uh, situation at that point. So anyhow, it's throwing money down the toilet. It's kind of like going to, I don't know, like the gym, uh, you know, and having a nice workout and spending about 30 bo- bucks for a workout for the month. And then every day going to Krispy Kreme right after, uh, you know, what's the <laughs> point? Well, you know, you might as well just throw your money down the toilet.
Well, there's a few weeks until South Carolina does get to the polls, and, and we'll see if these ad buys, all this money that uh, Nikki Haley is pouring into her campaign, into into these uh, TV ads and everything, whether it is able to help make up some ground. In the meantime, continue to watch David Brody on the 700 Club on Faith Nation, everything that he does over at CBNNews.com, all the analysis that he provides to us, uh, invaluable stuff this time of year, of course, every four years when we have this election cycle moving around. David, thank you so much for coming back on the DC Debrief. Really appreciate it. It is a pleasure, and I am glad I was able to exercise my vocal cords today. I will now take a lozenger. Thank yeah, you. Thank I think you, so. David. And in a little bit of news that came down the pike after my conversation uh, with David Brody, this came down late on Thursday night. The Republican National Committee was reviewing a draft resolution that, if it was approved, would declare Donald Trump the party's presumptive 2024 presidential nominee now, even as Nikki Haley continues her campaign. The dispatch on Thursday morning had obtained a copy of a draft resolution. Uh, it was proposed by David Bossie, who is a, an RNC committee person from Maryland. Uh, he's a, also a close Trump ally. It would also, uh, the, the idea here would put the National Party on essentially uh, a path to focusing on the general election as opposed to continuing to have this, uh, this battle between Trump and Nikki Haley. However, on Truth Social, Donald Trump said, while I greatly appreciate the Republican National Committee wanting to make me their presumptive nominee, and while they have far more votes than necessary to do it, I feel for the sake of party unity that they should not go forward with this plan, but that I should do it the old-fashioned way and finish the process off at the ballot box. All right, everybody, now it's time for your closer, and the doomsday clock was back out again. Uh, this comes the, the folks who do the doomsday clock are out this time every year uh, with their update on, on where it stands. For those of you who aren't familiar uh, with the doomsday clock, uh, this was created in 1947, and it serves, it's not an actual clock. There's nothing's ticking necessarily, but it's supposed to be an annual warning, and Kind of a way for for these um, for these scientists to make the world aware of the different issues and threats that exist around the world. Uh, it's basically a, a group of scientists and and world leaders who are asking society to address threats to humanity. It is currently stuck at ninety seconds away from global catastrophe on the doomsday clock. Ninety seconds away. It's the same as last year. Uh, this is according to the. It's uh, created by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. They say that. Global instability uh, due to Russia's two-year war in Ukraine, um, Israel's war on Hamas after the October 7th attack. You've got uh, these proxy battles with Iran in the Middle East, nuclear powers who are seemingly disengaging from nuclear arms control talks. Uh, they also look at climate change and the growing risks of artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies, all reasons why Rachel Bronson, the CEO of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, said the risks of last year continue with unabated ferocity and continue to shape this year. Today, we once again set the doomsday clock to express a continuing and unprecedented level of risk. Now, it has not always been right here at 90 seconds. Now, the folks who were the fathers of the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan, Albert Einstein, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, uh, other scientists and engineers from the Manhattan Project, which, of course, we got to know very well with uh, Oppenheimer that came out this year. 
Uh, they're the ones who created the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and they're the ones who created the Doomsday Clock as a way after the after the dropping of these bombs on Japan at the end of World War II to kind of, to warn the world about the risks of unchecked nuclear power. And now we are moving past just nuclear power, nuclear weapons, the threat of nuclear war. The Doomsday Clock can move backwards. It hasn't always been at 90 seconds, and in fact. Uh, the the furthest backward it was was at 17 minutes to midnight following the end of the Cold War, uh, when you had unprecedented nuclear arms controls agreements reached between the United States and, and Russia. Uh, so it has been further back before. It hasn't always been this close to midnight. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. And again, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you if you get your podcast some other place that's kind of weird, we're probably there too. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief. Debrief.